Hare Krishna, good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming again. Thank you for coming in the last, hopefully, the last throes of. Florida's winter here. Uh, is anybody here at uh, New Raman Riti for the first time? Oh, wow, that's actually quite a few of you. Welcome. Uh, thank you for coming, especially. Um, is this your first time in a Hare Krishna temple in general, or is this your first time 
at our Hare Krishna temple, or both. First time here. First time in this temple. Is anybody here for the first time at a Hare Krishna temple overall? Well, thank you. Uh, that is, uh, you are especially welcome. Uh, we do know that it takes a little bit of courage to come to a Hare Krishna temple for the first time. Um, uh, Mother Mukhi, who just gave some announcements, mentioned that I'm a science teacher uh, over at our school over here. And I just wanted to do a shameless plug in the mood of probably having to ask for forgiveness. But uh, we are doing an um, ongoing fundraiser from now until Gaur Panim, where our science classes have been making these copper etchings. Uh, we've got Krishna's lotus feet here. And we also have little plaques with the Maha Mantra on them. And so the students are making these as part of their science class, uh, what we call STEAM education, which is science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics, and all the funds we raise from some of these go back to investing in the school. So please support our children. Children are any society's most valuable resource. Um, and with that, we'll get started with the daily affairs of uh, the Bhagavad Gita. So the Bhagavad Gita is the, the main book of the Hare Krishna movement. It is sort of a consolidation and a synthesis of all of the uh, so-called Vedic literatures, which are the scriptures that... Um, what is commonly known of as Hinduism is based on. Um, unlike uh, religions here in the West, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, which basically have one central book focused on a central narrative, the Vedic scriptures of India constitute uh, an encyclopedic volume of both spiritual and material knowledge. Uh, and this is all synthesized, the essence of all of that knowledge has been extracted and is contained in this book, the Bhagavad Gita. And it's traditional in Hare Krishna temples on Sunday nights that we hear a verse from the Bhagavad Gita and expound on that verse a little bit. Are you familiar at all with the Bhagavad Gita? Nope. Is that the first time you've ever heard those words mentioned? Wow. We have Bhagavad Gita's available for anybody who's interested. Um, for yourself or to distribute to other people. Um, so just the, the standard way that this goes is that I pick a verse as my heart desires for the day, and then I'll read the Sanskrit translation. So this, uh, the Bhagavad Gita is a conversation that took place between Krishna, who is the supreme personality of Godhead. Krishna is a Sanskrit name for God. Uh, we recognize that God being unlimited has unlimited names as well. Uh, but we find the name Krishna to be especially appropriate uh, because Krishna means the most attractive person. So whatever it is that we're attracted to, that quality is contained within Krishna to an unlimited extent. That's one of the definitions of God, is that God is able to attract everybody all the time with something. Um, and so this is a conversation that took place between Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, and Arjuna, who is a prince and a warrior in, I'm going to say, India at the dawn of history, um, about 5,000 years ago. And as the story goes, Arjuna was about to engage in an epic battle with his family, and he didn't think that was a very good idea, and so he became, uh, he became filled with lamentation, and he asked Krishna, what should I do? I have a duty to fight for a just cause, but I don't want to go murdering my relatives here either. You know, a lot of people will suffer, as we see in the world today. If there's war, there's suffering, even of innocent people. Um, 
unfortunately, often mostly of innocent people. Um, so, and then Krishna spoke to Arjuna this Bhagavad Gita. So I'm going to read today from the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, which is called Dhyana Yoga. The word Dhyana in Sanskrit means to meditate. So this is about the yoga of meditation. And this is verse number 46. Oh, I'm getting a little old. I need to take my glasses off here. Tapasvibhyo dike yogi. Tapasvibhyo dike yogi. Tapasvibhyo dike yogi. Tapasvibhyo dike yogi. Anibhyas chariko yogi. Anibhyas chariko yogi. Asmad yogi bavarjuna. Asmad yogi bavarjuna. Asmad yogi Ani bio pi matodika, Ani bio pi matodika, Ani yogi, bavarjuna, A yogi is greater than the ascetic, greater than the empiricist, and greater than the fruitive worker. Therefore, <clears throat> excuse me, O Arjuna, in all circumstances, be a yogi. Purport by His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami. Srila Prabhupada Ki. When we speak of yoga, we refer to linking our consciousness with the supreme absolute truth. Such a process is named differently by various practitioners in terms of the particular method adopted. When the linking process is predominantly in fruitive activities, it is called karma yoga. When it is predominantly empirical, it is called jnana yoga. And when it is predominantly in a devotional relationship with the Supreme Lord, it is called bhakti yoga. Bhakti yoga, or Krishna consciousness, is the unlimited perfection of all yogas. 
as will be explained in the next verse. The Lord has confirmed herein the superiority of yoga, but he has not mentioned that it is better than bhakti yoga. Bhakti yoga is full spiritual knowledge, and therefore nothing can excel it. Asceticism without self-knowledge is imperfect. Empiric knowledge without surrender to the Supreme Lord is also imperfect. And fruit of work without Krishna consciousness is a waste of time. Therefore, the most highly praised form of yoga performance mentioned here is bhakti yoga, and this is still more clearly explained in the next verse, which I chose not to read because the purport is much longer than this. So, but the point is basically the so this verse is coming at the end of the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna has explained to Arjuna in detail uh, the yoga system. Um, and yoga, of course, is a very popular theme in the world today. There are scores of yoga studios just here in Alachua County, Florida, which is really, you know, the middle of nowhere. Um, what to speak of in a major city, you know, there's just hundreds and hundreds of yoga schools. And this all stems, the, no, the general knowledge of yoga stems from India, of course, and stems from what I, I just uh, moments ago referred to as the Vedic scriptures. And is usually considered um, in, in some context of, of what is known as Hinduism. Of course, the word Hindu doesn't appear anywhere in the Vedic scriptures and is a name that was given to the people of the Indian subcontinent uh, during the Muslim invasion uh, many centuries ago. But the word, the word Hindu is not actually indigenous to um, India or the Vedic knowledge uh, which we are speaking about um, tonight. Generally, what is taken um, of as Hinduism falls into what's called the Sat Darshan, or, the, or six schools of thought that are organized around the entire corpus or the entire uh, body of the Vedic scriptures. And so there, Sat Darshan means the six visions or six ways of looking at the world around us. Um, and the, the propensity to even um, look at the world around us with a mood of understanding what it is, where it came from, how it works, what am I doing here, is there any purpose to it all, why am I forced to suffer even though I really want to enjoy. You know, all of, all of these questions, these are questions that are unique in the entire biological world to humans, right? Uh, no other animal is really asking these questions. They are just fulfilling the, the basic functions of life. Uh, <clears throat> you know, our, our spiritual master has condensed these uh, basic, for, uh, basic needs of life into eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. Um, there are different categories. 
Uh, the modern biologists speak of eight symptoms of life, which, you know, if you look at them closely, they all boil down to that. You know, life is based on a universal genetic code, uh, DNA. Um, life uh, interacts with its environment. Um, it can reproduce, right? So that's in there. It has to gain energy and process energy from the environment, so metabolism. Eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. It's all there, and every living thing is doing this. Um, and humans are doing this too, but humans, and what really uniquely defines human as a species separate from the rest of the biological world, is that we as humans, we start to wonder why. You know, why is all of this going on? How did this start? I was listening to a, um, a podcast this morning with a, with a famous astrophysicist who was talking about something called the, the Fermi Paradox. Uh, anybody here familiar with the Fermi Paradox? Yeah, cool. Okay. The Fermi paradox is, is basically a question that states if the universe is so big and so old, you know, there has to be other intelligent life out there. And why haven't either we found it or it found us? Um, and this, this astrophysicist was going through all of the different um, reasonable answers to that question. And I'm not going to go into any detail of that. Um, but it was... Um, displaying this unique feature of human life to wonder who are we and what is our place in this universe. And this is the question that is fundamentally underlying all forms of religion. This is why religions have fundamentally sprung up anywhere on this planet at any point in time. It's really people have these questions um, and we seek answers for these questions. And here in the purport to this verse, <clears throat> although it is somewhat compacted, there's a list of different ways that people go about seeking answers to these questions. Um, and these are the Sat Darshan. So um, briefly, I'll just explain what these Sat Darshan are. Um, and they come kind of in pairs. Uh, one that's mentioned here is fruit of work. Uh, fruit of work amongst the Sat Darshan is called the Mimamsavad, or the Karma Mimamsavad. And this is the idea that if I engage in good works, because simply of the laws of the universe. Uh, we were studying in my middle school science classes last week, uh, Isaac Newton's laws of motion, uh, one of which states that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. And so this is kind of like the law of karma, right? If I do something good, I will get something good coming back at me. Um, and by continuing to accumulate the good things and not accumulating the bad things, I will gradually elevate myself to the realms of eternal bliss and delight. Karma, karma, and And we see this extending into our world in the forms of all kinds of different um, altruistic activities. Uh, you know, we're, I, I'm just here trying to raise money for a school. That's an altruistic activity. Um, planting trees, opening hospitals, feeding the poor, <clears throat> excuse me, providing shelter, things like this. And so we seek to improve our lot in life um, when we come to a little bit of the mode of goodness, we seek to improve the lot of our lives by improving the lot of the lives of our whole community, right? We try to uplift humanity. In this way, we feel like we will find peace and happiness and security in the world by developing our society. Um, these are all extensions of this mamamsavad. Um, uh, there's nyaya, which is logic, uh, you know, just the rules of logic. And of course, in the Western world, we have you know, nearly 3,000 years of history of nyaya, thank you, 
of, of logic, reason, and argument first coming from the ancient Greeks. And there are whole schools of this in India also. But the principle is pretty much the same. We can use our mental prowess to try to deduce what's going on with the universe. Um, and this is related very much to something called Sankhya. Sankhya is uh, loosely translated as science. Um, but Sankhya is the process of using our material senses to analyze the world around us through observation. Um, but observation, of course, is not enough. We need to process our observations. And that's where the nyaya, that's where the rules of logic come into play and are sorting out what's going on in the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's the rain. Um, tied up with this is the idea of um, one of the other Satyarshans is Vaisheshika philosophy, which holds that there is a fundamental building block to the material world. Uh, this is known in the modern world as the theory of atomism, that everything that we perceive around us, all different forms of substances, molecules, elements, all of these things are derived from combinations of fundamental building blocks, which in Sanskrit is called the Anu. Of course, there are other... Uh, translations of the word Anu. Um, and in English or in uh, you know, romantic languages is called the Adam. Um, and so these conclusions can be arrived at through observation and logic, reason, and arguments. Um, another thing that we can arrive at through logic, reason, and argument and observation is that our endeavors to enjoy life by accumulating good karma are often limited and faulty, right? No matter how much we endeavor on a personal level to try to enjoy, there is always an element of suffering involved in our life. It's impossible to be enjoying all the time. And even the things that we think we enjoy, we eventually get sick of, or they make us sick. Um, I often give the example of ice cream. I know Adi Kartapagu is going to you know, try to sell me some Shrikhand. Um, but, uh, you know, we eat ice cream, it tastes good, so we want to eat some more ice cream, and so we keep eating it because the pleasure is actually fleeting, right? So we need to keep endeavoring to maintain the pleasure, and eventually, you know, it makes us sick, right? Too much sugar. Short-term sick, I don't feel good. Long-term sick, I've got diabetes, things like this. So we see that the things that bring us individual pleasure in the world are often also causes of suffering, if not used wisely and responsibly. And it's very difficult to always use things wisely and responsibly. There's temptation in the world. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak, like this. Um, and we also see on a community level that, um, you know, all of our endeavors to feed the poor, you know, uh, house the houseless, um, eliminate disease from society, uplift people through education, um, all of our endeavors to try to protect environmental resources or maintain some pristine aspects of our earth, they're, they're um, not going all that well, right? They're not going all that well. And on the one hand, we could make the argument that um, modern civilization, capitalism and so on and so forth, has uplifted so many people out of poverty. Uh, one could make that argument. And there's plenty of statistics to back that argument up. At the same time, one could also make the argument that although modern society has uplifted so many people out of poverty. There are more people today alive on this planet living in destitution than there ever have been, ever has been, sorry, in the whole history of the world. And so it's hard to really get a bearing on the impacts of our karma in the world. 
Karma is a very twicky, tricky web. Um, and we don't really see where it begins and where it ends. And we don't really understand all of the different nuances in which we are entangled in the web of karma that we've woven for ourselves, both in this life and in previous lives, right? Um, so even using observation, logic, reason, and argument, we can come to the conclusion that the idea of elevating ourselves through fruitive activities has some severe limitations, right? And this is where people generally come into a bit of an existential crisis. Like, what are we supposed to do now, right? Um, it is, uh, Prabhupada also mentions here um, in the verse he uses, he translates uh, a word as empiricist. Uh, the empiricists are the scientists of the world, right? They're the people who are using the scientific method to try to answer all of these questions. And if there's one thing we've learned through, you know, 2,000 years of empiricism on the earth, it's that we really know nothing and we will never really know anything. The universe is so big, it's so big, that we can, every time we think we've found its border, the border gets further away than it was before. Never was there a scientific discovery that made our universe smaller, right? It always makes it bigger. And then we think, you know, our only limitations in seeing the edge of the universe is the, the time it takes for the light to get here. So how do we know that there aren't objects beyond what we see as the edge of the universe? And they're just so old and so far away that the light hasn't gotten here yet. You know, and this is speaking on cosmological scales, but even on Earth, the story that we tell ourselves about evolution and dinosaurs and the Cambrian explosion and climate change and all of this stuff is based on a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the rocks that have ever existed on this planet. So we can kind of piece together coherent stories using empiricism, but the conclusion of empiricism is that we can never really know much at all, right? The atom is so small and the universe is so big and our technology is so limited. Um, so what do we do? This is where the existential crisis begins. And people take to existentialism. They look out in the universe, they're faced with these existential questions, and they give up hope. And they say there is no meaning, right? There is no meaning. And they, they, this either leads to uh, a path of depression or it leads to a path of hedonism, right? Well, there is no meaning to it. Let me exploit this world for my own sense gratification because there really are no consequences to harming other people or, har or harming the earth or whatever. Um, but this is not the conclusion of the Vedas. Um, and this brings us to the last two of the Sat Darshans that I wanted to speak about. Uh, the, first, the next one, which is yoga. So this was, the, this was the crisis that Arjuna was faced in on the battlefield. What is the point of all of this? I have to act in this world, but there's no really good outcome here. I'm, I'm, I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't, as the saying goes. Um, and so then Krishna advised Arjuna to practice yoga. He said, okay, disentangle yourself from the whole thing. And he went through the stages in brief here in this book of Ashtanga Yoga, Yama and Niyama, which are like the Ten Commandments of Yoga. You know, how to keep yourself clean, never lie, don't steal, don't be envious, right? Don't be violent, practice nonviolence in, in mind, body, and speech, right? Be satisfied with everything that comes your way. Uh, Santosh, right? Practice austerities for no other purpose other than to practice austerities, right? Because it's healthy. 
so this is where yoga begins, and already, you know, we've lost 90% of the people who are showing up at yoga studios around the world. As soon as you mention the yama of brahmacharya, they are out. Like, no, thank you. But that's one of the top ten. Like, that's, like the, that's like the seat upon which yoga rests. And if you can do that, all the yamas and the niyamas, then there's asana and pranayama and pratyahara. And can you really withdraw your senses from their objects so that we've detached our consciousness from the material surroundings and begun the journey inward into deep concentration, dharma, on the nature of the self, which when mature turns into jhana, which Krishna is speaking about here, and then ultimately into samadhi, fixed intelligence on the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And Krishna explained all this to Arjuna, and then Arjuna was like, yeah, no, I don't think I can do that either. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't really sound like it's for me. But what do I do? And now Krishna's leading up to the conclusion, which is that of all yogas, the, the, the king, or the queen, I should say, of the yoga, is bhakti yoga. There is a yoga, there's a relinking there's a reawakening and a reconnection of our consciousness with the divine through acts of devotion. And this is the conclusion that Krishna is leading Arjuna to here in the sixth chapter. That yes, you can practice this yoga. And yes, through mechanical endeavor, through some sort of mental and physical exercise, we can extract our consciousness from the entanglements of the material world. But this is extremely difficult. I remember when I was... Uh, the summer that I turned 17, my, my parents sent me on a, a guided hiking trip through Colorado. We walked 245 miles through the Colorado wilderness. This was in the, um, when was this? This was in 1994, the summer of 1994. And um, I thought I would be like way out in the Colorado wilderness, but there was not one day along those whole 245 miles of walking that we did not hear an airplane flying over or see a jet plane traffic. So even in the wilderness, there's no silence, from, or there's no real escape. And that was, you know, 30 years ago, literally. So, you know, where are we going to go to be in a solitary place? You know, one of the rules of practicing yoga is that a yogi should aspire to live alone. Um, and I can tell you that as somebody who lives alone here in Alachua, Florida, nobody can afford that. <laughs> it's not possible. Unless you're really ready to go out in the woods. It's a difficult, it's a difficult journey. But there's hope yet, because there is a form of yoga, there's yoga in devotion. So yoga means to relink, and, and Prabhupada speaks here about the supreme absolute truth. So the supreme absolute truth, this is the last thing I just want to speak about briefly before uh, we feast, or take some questions in the feast. Uh, the supreme absolute truth is that truth which is not related to anything else. It's independent of any other truths. So all of the truths that we, appear, uh, that we perceive of or that we believe in here in the material world are relative to our ability to perceive things. And then they're also relative to cultural context, language, personal experience. You know, my experience of cold is not the same as your experience of cold, right? Um, not from Florida. So my vision of green is not the same as your vision of green. So this is all hard to sort out. But beyond all of this, there is a supreme, absolute truth. And this is what is referred to in the West as God, right? That thing which lies beyond and within all other things, from which all other things are emanating. And the Vedic literatures have 
very detailed descriptions of what that means in detail. And I just said detail twice. It's summarized in the Srimad Bhagavatam, Vedanti Tat Tattva Vidhas Tattvam Yajjanam Advayam Brahmeti Paramatmeti Bhagavan Iti Sabdhyate. And that means the supreme absolute truth has three features. One feature is the feature of undifferentiated oneness, where everything just is eternally the same forever. Unchanging. The next feature is a feature of localized intelligence. There's a feature of God that is aware of everything and is present everywhere, all the time. And that's called the Paramatma, that's the super soul. And that is the aspect of God that is within our hearts, that is permeating every atom and is just everywhere, knowing all things at all times. And then there's Bhagavan. Bhagavan is the supreme personality of Godhead, and that is God in all of his personal features. And so this is, and in these personal features, there are all varieties of tastes and desires to engage with other conscious living entities in eternal pastimes of love and devotion. Um, this is Bhagavan. And this is compared to a mountain. If you're driving east, or sorry, if you're driving west along the I-70 through Kansas and eastern Colorado, it looks like a big flat plain of nothingness until at some point, maybe 100 miles east of Denver, there's this big kind of wall of gray that appears off in the distance. And you can see that there's something magnificent and imposing way over there, but you can't really quite make out what it is. And that's compared to the, the Brahman aspect of God. It's just a mass of oneness that is amazing, but we don't really know what it is so much. As you get closer to it, you can start to see, oh, these are mountains. And you can start to see that there are individualized mountain peaks, and there are individualized glaciers, and there are rivers flowing down these mountains, and there's a shape to it. Um, this is compared to the, the, the better focus of the Paramatma feature of the Lord. And then finally, if you are, if you are fortunate enough to get through the Denver metropolitan area traffic and make it to the mountains, you can see actually that these mountains are filled with innumerable living entities that are all engaged in this beautiful dance of life that we see. Um, singing, swaying in the breeze, shining, green, blooming, smelling so fragrantly, chirping. And this is compared to Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Because it's when you get into the mountains when you can really begin to engage with the mountain environment. And so bhakti yoga, which Krishna mentions here, is the yoga of engaging in loving devotion to the Supreme Personality of God. And that is the highest of all forms of yoga, which brings us to the last of the sat darshans here, which is called Vedanta. Um, and so we, in the Hare Krishna movement, we, although our tradition embraces all of these other five darshans, we are Vedantists, and specifically, we are Bhakti Vedantists. Veda means knowledge, and we spoke a little bit about the Vedas and what the Vedic scriptures are. And so Veda is knowledge, and knowledge is always expanding. We're always learning more about our world, right? And the scientific method is real, and faith-based knowledge is real. And these things lead us to always understand more and more and more about the world that we live in. But this is an endless job. Vedanta... The suffix anta to a Sanskrit word means the conclusion of knowledge. And so Vedanta is the school of thought that conclusively describes what the supreme absolute truth is. And this is encapsulated, of course, in a scripture called the Vedanta Sutras, 
of which our Srimad Bhagavatam, which is the big encyclopedia you see on the back wall here, um, this is a commentary on the Vedanta Sutras. And what is the conclusion? What is the purpose of the commentary? The purpose of the commentary is to make clear what the purport of the main work is. It's to clarify the original work. And so these, we have here the Bhakti Vedanta purports because Bhakti, devotion to God, is the conclusion of all forms of knowledge. So thank you very much. I'll stop there. See if anybody has any questions, comments, complaints. Other Sudha, yes. I think there's a microphone coming. Yeah. yeah, that's a lecture for another day. Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> thank you. I forgot. I did have that in my notes here. My notes got buried here. Yeah. Um, uh, there are nine processes of bhakti yoga. Bhakti yoga begins with hearing and chanting about Krishna. So uh, that is what we are doing right now. I am chanting, you are hearing, uh, when we make kirtan in the temple, and so we're both benefited. Um, I'm, in fact, probably benefited more than you are. <laughs> so, um, so that's where it begins, hearing and chanting about Krishna. And when we make kirtan, which we will do for the rest of the evening, there's one person chanting, and then everybody else is repeating. And so the person who's chanting is chanting, and everybody else is hearing, and then it switches. Everybody else is chanting, and that one person is hearing. So hearing and chanting, and through hearing and chanting about Krishna, we will automatically begin to remember Krishna. It becomes like an earworm. So what do we hear and chant about Krishna? Um, the main thing is we chant this mantra here, the Hare Krishna Mahamantra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare, which would look beautiful on your altar at the feet of your deity. Um, and so this mantra you could chant forever. Uh, you know, for you, we make no profit for you. Uh, come see me for details. Go big or go home. Um, yeah, see me for details. I don't want to talk about money on the guest end, but they are available. Um, and so this mantra can be chanted anywhere, at any time. There's a famous story of a few of our favorite beetles on a boat uh, in the Greek island sailing around, strumming this mantra chanting Hare Krishna for days on end, they said, days on end, and they didn't really even know anything about it, right? And so we, many people in this room have been chanting Hare Krishna for, I don't even want to say how long, a long time, right? I've been chanting Hare Krishna for a long time, I'm not even you know, halfway there, so. Um, then there are details, so all of what you see here on our altar, this is all devotion. So making these garlands, making these backdrops, uh, dressing the deities in the morning, uh, saying the prayers to wake the deities up properly, keeping the deities, and not just the deities, but the altar and the temple room and the effigy of Srila Prabhupada here in the back. This is all devotional service, right? Keeping it going. Um, the cooking of the prashadam, the serving of the prashadam, the eating of the prashadam, and then most importantly, the cleaning up after the prashadam. The prashadam is the delicious feast we're all, all about to have here. This is all devotional service. Um, so again, this is a lecture for, uh, you know, another year's worth of lectures. So what you're yeah. saying is that pretty much, pretty much whatever you do, you could do, you could do it for Krishna. Whatever you do, whatever... Most things that you do, you can do for Krishna. There are obviously some moral limitations to that, I think. Um, but yeah, yeah. 
So, and then, so, d d engage, uh, let me, I'll just add this to the details of how to engage in devotional service. Devotional service really, or the practice of bhakti yoga really begins when we start to have a little faith that it might be a good idea. Like, oh, this seems kind of cool. This is called shraddha. Like, this is kind of cool. These people are kind of cool. And that leads uh, one to want to associate more with devotees. And then in the association of devotees, which is called sadhu sangha, um, then we start to learn more and more and more details, right? And there's so many details. Prabhupada said one time, if I told you all the rules, you would faint. And, and then we would not follow half of them anyway. So, <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, so, but we learn these details in the association of devotees. There's so many details for people who want to learn them. But really the main thing is to take this mantra in your heart and carry it with you wherever you go. You know, nobody can take this mantra from you. It's independent of time, place, and circumstances. You know, we've, we've had people everywhere. And, you know, we've had people in the White House chanting Hare Krishna. We've had people sitting in jails chanting Hare Krishna. The Hare Krishna Maha Mantra actually, in fact, is the one thing in this material world that will never leave you. Any other questions or comments? Yes, please. Hare Krishna. Very good. Uh, yes, probably nice classes. You know, I enjoy them. The, uh, the aspects you're missing, the uh, empiricism and uh, the way to accumulate knowledge, it's, you know, the Vedic principle is, is a descending form where you, you learn things that are proven and that knowledge is confirmed. The empiricism is uh, ascending as, as we discover it. And so it's, the foundations really is not there. It's always ongoing where with the Vedic system, you know it's there. It doesn't have to be proven. It doesn't have to go through a rigorous test, because it's the truth. It's known. It's uh, trying to put the two together is, is a difficult thing, because people are swayed by their, you know, environment they're in. So, what's the best resolution for this? Well, so it's it is significant that here um, Prabhupada writes. Uh, let me see if I can find the exact words here. He writes. Um, Empiric knowledge without surrender to the Lord is imperfect. So he's not rejecting empiric knowledge. He's saying that if your empiric knowledge is not leading you to the surrender, uh, to the conclusion of surrendering to the Lord, it's not perfect. That doesn't, mean it's, that, that doesn't even mean that it's wrong. It just means it's not perfect. Um, and we see even in modern physics today, so in modern physics today, the big thing is, um, the big idea that's being explored is the idea that we live in a simulation, right? Yeah, we live in a simulation. This is a simulation of the spiritual world. But they use this kind of language because they don't want to, they don't want to acknowledge that a simulation has to be written by somebody. That a simulation from where? Simulating what? Right? And so they, they lose the focus there. So we talk about the Big Bang and the way the Big Bang unfolded, according to the modern science, is the same as the way the Bhagavatam describes the unfolding of the material universe from a subtle state to a gross state. But they're missing the point, right? They don't get the point of, you know, there's a, there's a creator. Somebody made it that way. You know, they understand how the material laws work with great detail. I mean, flying in an airplane is the safest way to travel. We've pretty much mastered gravity within our little sphere of Earth here. Um, but they don't, they don't know who wrote that law. So it's not wrong, it's imperfect. 
because they have not come to the right conclusion. And the Bhagavad Gita explains, you know, the four classes, why people don't come to that conclusion. You know, and sometimes with the empiricists, it's because they are um, what's called maya parita gyan, their knowledge has been, they're so involved in their knowledge seeking that they can't see the forest through the trees. Like the, the truth is staring and playing in the face and they just can't miss it. And this unfortunately is the state of modern academia. And Prabhupada also writes in the Bhagavad Gita that you cannot be a sage or a scholar unless you, you're disagreeing with everybody else. And that is how science works. You've got to have your own idea. But the, the result of this is that the, that knowledge system gets more and more and more into like useless details. You know, people just go off into different directions looking for some new useless thing to find out, but they lost the point. You know, originally science, going back to the Greeks, and then again in the Renaissance and the medieval times, originally science was a deliberate attempt to understand God's creation, right? Um, you know, Copernicus was a priest. The guy who came up with the Big Bang Theory was a Catholic priest. You know, Isaac Newton was a, was a very religious man. He was a lifelong dormitory. Um, so they, they weren't scientists. They were what are called natural philosophers. They were trying to understand God's creation as a matter of philosophy, as a matter of nyaya and sankhya. And they developed the scientific method so that they can incorporate their direct observations into the canon of their theology. And this is a tradition and this is a practice that is seen throughout the modern history of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, starting with the work of Jiva Goswami, who very much embraced informing Shastra conclusions through empiricism, through pratyaksha, but not at the expense of missing the point. And so Prabhupada, I, th I think it is very significant here that Prabhupada writes, um, empiric knowledge without surrender to the Supreme Lord is imperfect. So there is a role for this to play, but it should point us to a conclusion. So in my opinion, you know, as, as somebody also who had a, who's, was born in a religious family, has a daily religious practice, and was a professional scientist for a long time, I, I failed to see the problem, <laughs> right? The problem is only due, is due to a misunderstanding only. Um, and most people in the world, this misunderstanding is a misunderstanding of innocence. They've just been misled or not led properly. In very few cases is it like somebody is just like willfully denying the existence of God. It makes perfect sense that there's a God, right? Yes. Yeah. That is the last point. Then we'll go eat. I promise. Yeah. Krishna says the soul is his own first guru. So that means this ascending process is also required. Yeah. Like Prabhupada translated Shraddha in the 4.10 Bhagavad Gita, preliminary desire for self-realization. Yeah. So I have to come on my own to pursue spiritual life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, raise your hand if you were looking for Krishna, even though you didn't know you were looking for Krishna. Yeah. We were looking yeah. for Krishna. I mean, I know, I know a few stories where somebody just like, woke up and there was an Isha Upanishad next to him for some reason because he just passed out somewhere. But most of us were looking for Krishna. And I mean, in the introduction in the Krishna book, it says everybody's looking for Krishna because it's, everybody is looking for Krishna because Krishna is the most attractive person, right? Everything that we are looking for in this world because we're attracted to it. You know, I want to listen to this kind of music. I like this kind of pizza. I want to go visit this mountain. This is, I'm attracted to it. But all of these things have their source in Krishna. 
So yeah, so there's both. It's, it's, and that's what makes it a relationship and not, you know, we're not robots in Krishna's service or automatons. All right. Thank you very much. Srimad Bhagavad Gita Ki Jai. Sunday Feast Ki Jai. Florida.